Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Achtung, achtung, or maybe tally-ho, tally-ho. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with uh, me, Al Murray, and James Holland. And we are delighted to be joined by a very special guest who has produced a book that is nothing short of phenomenal on uh, on his uh, chosen subject. I mean, uh, if if our guest ever went on Mastermind with his chosen subject, I think he'd, he'd wipe the Max floor points. with it. It's the, Max points. It's <laughs> maximum points. It's quite extraordinary, this book. Um, so who are we talking to today, James? Well, we're talking to um, a highly qualified aerospace welder, a mechanical engineer, an engine design consultant, and the author of The Secret Horsepower Race. We're talking to Callum Douglas. And <laughs> Callum, your book is absolutely astonishing. Oh, I mean, very much, the James. level of detail, the research that's gone into this. Um, I challenge anyone to quibble with anything that you've said in this, because... You're clearly the numero uno on this subject. I think there's a lot of quibble room on some of the influences and the weight I've attributed to some things, but um, I've pretty much got about three original letters um, for every single fact in there, and as a, 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 <laughs> as a few unfortunates on various forums have discovered, so 
Um, yes, I've, <laughs> I've, I've, I've tried. There's, and there's nothing more enjoyable than squashing someone on a forum. Well, um, <laughs> I, I usually try not to, but sometimes they ask for it, and um, yeah, of course. The, so, so to the to the uninitiated, the, the, what, the, the secret horsepower race, Western Front Fighter de- Engine Development. It's a it's a mighty tome, um, uh, uh, packed with original, um, with primary sources, with original diagrams, literally with blueprints reproduced in blue. I mean, it's the most extraordinary book. But the, it's a but the, the the story of the development of of the piston engine in um, in the Second World War. Is it is it a linear tale or is it a thing with leaps and bounds and jumps and starts? Because I think um, our our listeners will be familiar with the with the, the you know the problems that the um, fighter command have with the Merlin engine, for instance, during the Battle of Britain, which which are solved with a washer, as we all know. But you wonder how a company like Rolls Royce, with this famous engine, the fated Merlin engine, could end up in a situation where they produce a fighter engine that that you know, that has such a basic problem for all that, for all their omniscience in the field. So what, what's the, what, what is the story of the development of the piston engine? And after all, it sort of comes to an end at the end of the second world. What is it when the Jetta engine arrives? It does a rather abrupt and sad end, unfortunately, but um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the, the story is quite a bonkers one and it sort of goes and twists and turns and it's, it's, it's not linear at all. Um, when I started writing it, Originally, the idea was I was going to write a book about how clever the German engines were. And um, I had to completely reframe the whole book after about a year of research because I discovered that actually they had all these horrendous problems. I thought, I thought, oh, God, my, my whole premise of my books has fallen apart. I can't. What am I going to do? <laughs> um, so eventually I realised that the more interesting thing was to say, well, here's what everyone did wrong and here's what everyone did right and then go and actually get the documents and say, well, why did that go wrong? Who messed that up? Yeah. Did they know they yeah. messed it up? Did they, were they talking about it or is this stuff that we found out after the fact? And so um, I've tried to make a kind of... it's. I've tried to make it into a little bit of a crime novel, if you like. Um, you've got some characters, some goodies and some baddies and some of the people you root for might not be the people you think you're going to root for. And you find out little bits as you go along about who's done what wrong. And at the end, um, there's a bit of a sort of uh, wrapping up where um, everyone gets invited <laughs> into the room and then sort of uh, glared at and told what they've done wrong. And, and, and you, you, you apply your little grey cells. And... Exactly, yeah. So something like that. So it's, I think it's a little bit of a detective novel for those of a mechanical bent is how I would describe it. Right, OK. So who are the heroes and villains and, and anti-heroes and... Uh... In the in the story of the piston. Oh, engine. there's a lot. I think um, one anti-hero is uh, Helmut Sachser. So he was in charge of German aero engine development, and he was really really good pals with Bullman. And George Bullman was running aero engine development at the Air Ministry, and um, Sachser would actually come over to England and have dinner with him in London in the thirties. Uh, the the two incredible. were really really good pals. And basically, um, the two of them had a, a chat in a bar in Munich in, I think, 1938. And they, they knew it was going to be the last time they were going to meet. And they basically just sort of said cheers to each other and said, uh, now we're going to have to go and, you know, do our duty, you know, and probably do things which harm people we know, which is pretty horrible. But uh, Saxa basically got sacked because he hated the Nazis. He didn't get on with any right. of them. So they basically shuffled off their best man to BMW and it's very fortuitous that that happened 
Um, and so basically, um, I think uh, Zach's is a bit of a, a bit of an anti-hero. But Zach's is a, he's a hero rather than a villain. I, I think so. Um, he he was just doing his job as an engineer, and he he didn't like the Nazis, and he refused to um, to sort of you know toe the line. Toe the line, and so they they got rid of him because they thought this isn't our man, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the. I mean, the, the Nazis, fortunately, are constantly shooting themselves in the foot by getting rid of people that they don't like. Who actually happen to be incredibly talented, whether they be, you know, atomic scientists or or, or whether they be aero engineers or, or whatever. I mean, it's it's incredible how many really, really amazing people that would have been incredibly helpful to their war effort don't help their war effort because the Nazis don't like them. And so, what what does he take with him, as as it were? What do they miss out on? With, without him in charge. Well, he's um, not only a, a very, very good engineer, but he understands how you manage projects and um, how you how you make engineering happen. And um, yeah. basically, they replaced him with a guy called uh, Wolfram Eisenlaw, who I think um, he actually became quite a respected personality in German aviation circles after World War Two and played a a lot of uh, role in sort of trying to rejuvenate German aerospace. After and he's World. a pilot, isn't he? First and foremost, um, if from a lot, well, like a lot of them were from World War One, so a, a lot yeah. of them had that kind of early history. And I think I, he's not a stupid man, and he knows engineering. But I don't, <laughs> I don't think he's got that kind of um, that little magic spark you need to, to to be part of a complex project and tie all the things together and talk to the right people and make sure things are heading in the right direction. I, don't, I think he's a bit too much of a boffin. And um, right. so he, he basically messes it all up, <laughs> essentially. Which is really good news. <laughs> yes, it is. That's, that, that, that's a sort of 10-second answer as to what, what happened. Uh, but, yeah. So where does he go? I mean, where, so where does he go wrong? Because after all, as you said at the start of this, you came to this assuming that the German em- engines were all better. Which And one of the tropes, after all, is... A, a Second World War tropes, isn't it? It's the German engineering is is all better or cleverer at least. And, then how come they don't win? Uh, uh, well, of course, James. We we can, we can go around that mulberry bush if you want. But 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 I mean, uh, the, the, that's the sort of the, the layman's impression, isn't it? But is the engineering smarter and or, or clever? I suppose is the word I'm looking really. Do you, do you do you see what I mean by the difference between clever and smarter? Like clever, clever, like tricksy, clever. Or smart, as in the applied thinking. What what is the ger- what 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 is the tell with the German engineering in those terms? Um, I'm going to have to defend the Germans a little bit because I think they were they were in <laughs> an impossible position, which is to say, with the resources yeah. they had, um, I don't think anybody would have um, successfully prosecuted the campaign that they wanted to. So yeah. um, from that perspective, I have to defend them a little bit. However, they yeah, did yeah. still really nosedive when they didn't have to. Um, and so I think, really, the, the story of what really happened that went wrong and how you get such clever people mucking it all up really comes out all thanks to the Imperial War Museum because they have, on microfilm, all the stenographic records of the German industry meetings. So that's spoken words. That's like a you know a sort of shorthand typist like you have in a courtroom. And um, wow. Erhard Milch insisted that they have this in all the meetings not not for benefit future his, historians but basically because he didn't want anyone coming back two weeks later saying but you said that you were gonna <laughs> yeah 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 and he's constantly having to, i mean milk is constantly having troubles with with goering with with udet of course but but with all the aircraft manufacturers as well 
first first when he's just deputy, but then later when he takes over for Muda as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I just couldn't believe um, when I started looking at this stuff. And um, I got all these microfilm reels in the reading room at IWM in London, and I rapidly came to the conclusion after about 10 minutes that I was never going to find out anything like that. So basically, um, <laughs> I made... Uh, I basically paid to have them all digitised. So... Um, yeah, no one's done that before. So if you go to IWM, you don't have to go through all the microfilm reel. It's been digitised. It's all on your. It's all amazing, on amazing. So the references are in the book. I know everyone hates archives, boring, but please. No doubt, I love please, archives. Um, do go to the references in IWM and and get that. It's all in a memory stick. It's just the USB stick. Get the USB stick and learn a bit of German and start reading this, and you think this is ridiculous. It's like a ridiculous script. You couldn't make up this stuff if you tried. So just reading through these things, it's just unbelievable, you know. Uh, Milch having these discussions with the engine development guys and saying, oh, the engine doesn't work, why not? Oh, I don't know, it's just sort of broken, really. Oh, you said last week you were going to fix it. Oh, well, um, it isn't fixed. There's, there's quite a lot of complacency, isn't it's, there? Um, it's just... It, 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 it's got a really unreal feel to it. I can't quite put my finger on it, but it's got a really sort of bizarre... Sort of much more amateurish and kind of just it's just not as kind of on it as you'd expect it to be, is it? What it really reminds me of is a meeting where actually no one in the meeting is qualified to discuss what they're discussing, and it's just chaos. It's like a sort of you know, but but are the particular, I mean, because I haven't looked into those um sort of discussions about engine performance in the way that you have, but I have looked into. Um, Milk's papers and his dealings with Messerschmitt, for example, who he just freaking hates because Messerschmitt is just a good Nazi and just does exactly what he wants, which isn't what the Luftwaffe wants and it's not what Milk wants. So, you know, he says, yeah, well, I'm going to try and upgrade the 109, but actually I'm going to turn it into a slightly different aircraft, so I'll make it the 209. And he just totally starts again. And he gets sort of carried away and goes off and sort of makes a, an ME 209, which is a total dog. And then he sort of goes, well, I'm going to do it again. I'll do a 309. And the 309 is a complete dog, so it never sees any action. It's just loads and loads of wasted time. It's the same with the ME110. You know, they need to upgrade it. So Milk gives him permission to upgrade it. And he doesn't. He redesigns it. And so it's a completely new aircraft, and that comes the ME210. And it's not, it's not the same aircraft at all. Yeah, it's. I think um, you need to look at the sort of chain of command to see what really went wrong. So if, if you look at the British discussions, I don't have a stenographic record, but you've got all the, the paperwork... Um, on the British side, you've got Bullman having discussions with Chief of the Air Staff, and basically Bullman's talking, he's talking to people like Ernest Hives at Rolls-Royce, you know? Whereas the, the Milch records, you've got Milch talking to Eisenlaw, and Eisenlaw is just an administrator, really, but you almost never have um, the engineers in charge of engine stuff in the meeting with Milch. Very occasionally, but almost never, and they're never present in any of the really pivotal discussions. So they've just got the wrong people in the meeting, and the people who are there can't answer the questions. It's it just it doesn't work. The chain of command's completely um, dysfunctional. And do you think that's why? Why sorry? Do you think that why it leads to Hans Joachim Marseille having to bail out of his ME one hundred nine G because it's caught on fire? I mean, is is that is that because of ineptitude, or is that because they haven't got enough? They haven't got good enough synthetic oils. 
and they haven't got enough ball bearings. I mean, well, it's or a bit is it of both, a bit of both because it's an engineering problem. So that was an engine failure that caused that, and that was due to lack, lack, lack of materials and so yeah, on. Yeah, of course. Um, but um, if they'd have been properly organised, they could have worked around things such that you wouldn't have stuff like that happening. So. Right, that's my point, really. So, so the, the shortages are the shortages. They can't do anything about that. But they could think around the problem and come up with a solution that would stop. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, one of the shortages they had was nickel, and um, BMW were the first mm. firm who came up with the solution to that. So they chrome plated all their valves because they had a bit more chrome than they had nickel, and that stopped them corroding, which is you know one of the serious problems. And basically, uh, the, da- the Daimler Benz engine started having the same problem which is quite catastrophic. And it took months before one of them said, oh, didn't BMW do something with that? Oh, yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> well, do they, do they re- but they, do they realise they have this sclerotic management system? And do they think we need to do something about this? Or are they like, well, that's just the way we do things. It's just the way it's done. And so they, uh, they, don't, ad- they don't address it. Do they realise this is a problem? Because very often, if you if you have got a, a bad management system and you you can't and you don't recognise it as such, you think you're doing fine, don't you? Did they think did they think they were getting it um, right? I think Milch definitely knew things weren't working, and you've got this um, astonishing right. thing I found in the, the stenographic record, which is I've, I'm putting my own interpretation on it here, but Milch basically comes into the meeting and says, "Oh, I've been sent this anonymous letter by someone in industry." <laughs> and he, start, he starts reading it out at the meeting and um, he, he never mentions who it's from but it it, 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 it sounds ridiculous and I, I think what's pretty obvious is Milch has written down some things that he doesn't like and then pretended that he's been sent this letter and starts That's reading really it funny. out and he, he starts reading this letter out and he's Oh, that Milch is quite a good bloke, isn't he? But shame about the other ones. It's, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm using a bit of artistic license, but it, it's, a bit, it's a bit like that. And that, that's in the book if you, um, if, you, if you get through it. I've put some bits in there. But it's obvious Milch is just using that as a ruse to get across his frustrations without basically just saying to people, you're rubbish, more, more or less. So, <laughs> But you see this. I mean, this is one of the problems that, that you have. I mean, the whole... The whole Nazi system is completely chaotic. Yeah. I mean, you, yeah. you see that in the 1930s. You know, what the, what the Nazis are creating is this kind of sort of fantasy world, this sort of la-la land where they can just do whatever they like. And the whole financing of the Nazi state is inherently corrupt anyway. And, and just the whole thing just goes to pot because you've got people at the very top who everyone's kowtowing to and being sycophantic to who are just absolutely not the right people. A few exceptions. I mean, I, you know, my own reading of it is that Milk is pretty pretty capable and pretty competent and certainly the most competent person in the senior Luftwaffe staff. But when Udet... So Udet is Goering's mate. And, um, you know, he's a, he's a barnstormer in the 1920s. He's a celebrated fighter race in the First World War. He's a brilliant pilot. And by all accounts, he's a, you know, good bloke and he likes to party and, you know, takes lots of drugs and takes lots of... and drinks lots and womanizes and all the rest of it. And he's a good-time boy. But he's totally at sea in the Machiavellian world of Nazi high politics. And and everyone, and he, you know, Goering makes him his kind of head of procurement just because he's his mate, not because he's qualified for the job in any other shape or form. Well, and, and therefore he can push him about. And so he gets pushed about. And he owes about. him his place. And, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But but everyone else pushes him about. So everyone just runs rings around him and he's got no grip on it at all. Absolutely no grip. Milk is tearing his hair out. And then when Milk turns takes over 
he just sees how completely awful and corrupt particularly Messerschmitt is. So he goes, right, OK, we're not going to have any more 109s. I'm going to go with the Focke-Wulf 190. And then, the fo- and then, then uh, um, Kurt Tank kind of lets him down a little bit on that one. Uh, and, you know, so he has to kind of then eat his eat his words. And, and it's just, it's absolute mayhem. But, I mean, what what's amazing about what you've done, Callum, is is you've really delved down into the kind of, I mean, I, I was aware of all that, but but you've delved down into the minutity of it just to really show how... I think so. And, and I think, um, I think Udet's plight was actually known outside of Germany. I, I do. Um, the reason I say that, I think I've mentioned this in the book, is that um, there's an absolutely unbelievable story, which I, I actually had to check this out several times. I did not believe it when I was told about it. But there's a, a very good pal of mine who's a great researcher called Lee Richards. And um, he's a specialist in black propaganda in World War Two, British stuff. Really, really knows his stuff. And um, he said to me one day, he said, oh, well, did you know that the British put out a newspaper article saying that Udet had committed suicide about six months before he did? And I said, what? I said, I said, oh, come on, this is wow. rubbish. So it, it can't be true. You must, someone must have got the dates wrong and stuff like this. So I checked it about five times, and it's true. There's an article comes out in British press saying that Udet had committed suicide months before he did. And um, you don't really know, but we can surmise that um, probably there's been some informants or knowledge of what was happening and the British black propaganda agents had thought this would be a really good way of sowing discord in the German upper sort of high command. So they basically wow. put this article out saying, oh, Udet killed himself because I imagine they must have known that he was... Known him well, yeah, enough, known him well it, enough it, and the pressure he was under and his... And his pr- pr- and yeah, his they probably knew his, he was on a bit of a knife edge. And... Um, you know, and then he did. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Uh, and that's that's one of the mm. real... I actually put that on a web forum because someone asked me what's the most um, surprising thing I found out in the whole research of my book. And I have to say that's completely bonkers. Um, yeah. That is, that is r- remarkable. So, that, so, the, so, so, so now... So we're, well, so we've done the chaotic German state of g- affairs in Germany. What's happening in in the UK? And we'll get to we'll get to America in a minute, where I imagine it's a complete uh, and uh, uh, and I suppose the Soviets is all just completely different stories. What are the British doing? Are they are they because because after all, you know, uh, if we're going back to sort of square one tropes, is that if anyone can make piston engines round here, it's it's the British and it's Rolls Royce. And it's the Merlin, and it's the Griffin, and it's Hives, and, and it's Stanley Hooker, yeah, and all exactly. those guys. Exactly, and we, we, you know, that we, the, the, the British have this down, and uh, uh, you know, even to the point where the Americans are licensing British aero engines and all this sort of thing. What, what's actually, what, um, what's well, actually going on? Uh, ostensibly, what you've just said is exactly what's going on on the surface. Um, there are more complicated right. levels to that, which is um, there's definitely some skullduggery going on. So um, I think it's fairly clear that uh, people in the air ministry probably thought that places like Bristol and Napier, um, they were probably a bit sketchy as to whether they were going to be really able to mass-produce reliable engines. And I think that I, th- I think they kept them going really as just a sort of backup set of firms to be making stuff, because I don't really think they had faith in them. And it was a bit chicken and egg, because I think for that reason they starved them of resources. 
um, because I think they thought mm, right. we haven't got enough resources to give all three of these companies everything they need. So we're just going to have to pick what we think is the winning horse and then try and yeah. So we're going to front um, load Rolls exactly. Royce. Yeah. So um, do you think that was the right decision, though? I mean, I mean the Merlin is an amazing, and also the other thing about the Merlin is it's not just the Merlin, is it? I mean, the Merlin's different. There's different types of Merlin. It's a bit like different types of Spitfire. I mean. I, I do think it was the right decision. I, I don't think it's a nice decision, and I, it upsets me a lot actually because I think um, uh, you know the stuff at Bristol and, and Napier could have been developed in a different way, and it could have really contributed to the war in a way that um, didn't quite manage to do. Not in terms of fighters, anyway. Um, but I, I think it probably was the right decision, and I think that's what Germany didn't do. They didn't sit back and say, "Look, how, many, how much resources have we actually got." I know, you know, we'd like to have Russia and invade France, but what can we actually do? And I think Britain actually did have that conversation and say, well... So hard-nosed pragmatism yeah. uh, um, and skullduggery wins fairness. Yeah. So um, it's very clear that um, the Sabre was, in particular, was basically had the rug pulled out from under it by FR Banks. Um yeah and who also wanted Bullman's job. I think he's quite a nasty piece of work, actually, FR Banks. Um, he's quite a famous character because he did a lot of the um, Schneider Trophy fuel stuff for the races. Right. Um, but right. I, I think he was actually a bit of a nasty piece of work, actually. Um, very clever, but I think he was he's definitely quite backhanded and involved uh, in all and, is your uh, and is your reading of it that the, the Napier, uh, Napier Sabre engine could have been better than it was? Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's a, it's a it's a big. I mean, it's a hell of a power plant, isn't it? I mean, I think um, it, what it basically needed was it needed a better supercharger, and right. um, really. And I should say for those who don't know, this is what powers the um, the Thai Hawker Typhoon. Thank you. Exactly. Yes. So yeah. really, um, the problem with it isn't that it makes loads of power. The problem with aeroplane engines is, well, yeah, you've got it on the ground; it makes loads of power. What does it do at forty thousand feet? And yeah, um, yeah. unfortunately, the saber doesn't. Uh, do what it needs to at that altitude so if they'd have had the resources what you'd like to think they'd have done is just got Stanley Hooker and everyone at Napier together in 1940 and said right you you lot you'll go to the pub and have a fight and then come back and just be, be good chaps <laughs> and just get together and just help each other um, yeah. but yes. they didn't do that so there's so there's not there's not a sort of supercharger conference where everyone gets together and says this is where we're up to on superchargers. So they so they they they're kept apart essentially as private businesses in, in that in that sense. Uh, because we, like, because last week we we were talking about the Dambusters and how you know uh, Vickers and 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 Avro do sit down to figure out how to get the upkeep mine onto the onto the Lancaster and what they need to do to the Lancaster and they do that quite quickly. But but I suppose I suppose one of the things is these are big contracts. There's a lot of money at stake here. And and maybe you you just do not want to share um, your supercharger know-how with, with Napier if you're a Rolls-Royce. You're just uh, with Bristol. You're just not interested in doing that because it's not commercially in your interest. Is that going on? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, um, they did swap some information. I know, I know that um, I think Fedden visited Rolls-Royce in about 1940. 40, 41 and asked for some yeah. advice and um, Hives gave him some technical advice and said look you know this, this is the kind of theory we're applying to our superchargers but he's not going to give them the drawings and send a load of no. staff down and start drawing stuff for them so no. um, it's 
there's definitely a Rolls-Royce monopoly and I can understand why fans of other planes and engines get quite upset about that but I think that is pretty much what happened <laughs> yeah and that's a com- that's a combination of pragmatism and sort of established power isn't it is that Rolls-Royce have the established power and they're not they're not gonna they're gonna not I mean you look at I mean after you look at what happens with the jet engine in the end Rolls-Royce <laughs> snaffle that up is actually what happens is they get they, they end up getting their hands on it rather than rather than uh you know, because they un- because because the government thinks actually these are the people that can deal with this best. They're the most experienced engine maker, and they have the best supercharger. That's what happens, isn't it, Jim? And, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. And and and, 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 and Rolls Royce have the most muscle in this this sort of uh, department, don't well, they? Well, yeah, they do, and I, you know, they're, they're they're developing axial flow and all that kind of stuff, um, um, jet engines, and you know, the Rolls Royce Avon, if I remember rightly, is is designed in 1944 and first run up in. 46 i think mm. you know and that that's a that's a pretty major post post war jet engine that that is in production for decades isn't it but we're not here to talk about jets Jim. no we're not we're, we're not we're just so, sidetracked so, yourself yeah. off the pistons so uh, but, but, so my point <laughs> my, 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 i was i, I think it's really interesting is is that you know people sort of go well you know the thing about the mosquitoes it can fly over 400 miles an hour and it kind of depends which mosquito and which engine it's got in it doesn't it i mean i mean you know the merlin 61 is obviously you know, a lot better than a Merlin three or a Merlin thirty. Yeah, I mean, it's it's mosquito is an amazing plane, and from reading all the German Air Ministry stuff, my vote for the best Allied plane of, of World War Two is probably uh, if you're talking sort of fighter stuff, multi-role is definitely the mosquito. I mean, it's it's really uh, they absolutely hated that thing, and. Um, the digitised files I've got are great because some of the pages are quite enough quality so you can do a keyword search. So it's, it's text searchable. Not all of them. Some of them are all wonky and stuff. You yeah. have to read them manually. But if you do a keyword search for Mosquito, it's mentioned more than any other Allied plane. And, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm not trying to denigrate the Spitfire, but there are not meetings where they all say, oh, no, the latest Spitfire is so amazing. We're all finished. Uh, uh, there aren't. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I, I, I'm not. I, don't, I, I get no pleasure from saying that. I'm just saying they're on. Whereas there are so, countless meetings where they're saying, "Oh, mosquitoes just done this, and we didn't even manage to shoot any of them down." And then they get um, Martini, who's the radar guy, in and say, "Why, why can't you pick the mosquitoes up?" And he says, "Oh, well, they fly very high, very fast, and they got a lot of wood, so they're really hard to pick up on the radar." So um, you know, you had all these. So, so when De Havilland develop it? I mean, I know this is not technically engine, but but when De Havilland de- develop it, is is part of the reason for the wood because it's not going to be picked up by radar? I don't know the answer to that question. I- See, I thought I thought it was just because it was an alternative source. No, of material. I don't think it is, Jim. I think it's... but what it's, a what a fantastic byproduct! It is. Yeah. It's an it's, it's an accidental uh, sort of stroke of luck. What's interesting is you had that Discovery Channel documentary about the Horton, and they, I don't know how much money they spent having that stuck on that radar rig out in America and saying it's, you know, the stealth plane. But um, I don't think there's any particular evidence that that aircraft actually possessed any serious stealth quality. Whereas, you know, the you know simple old Mosquito, you've actually got the meeting records where they're saying we can't yeah. pick it up on the thing because it's got too much wood and it's too fast. So it's interesting. You get, So it's sort of low tech, but it technically is actually, has stealth, um, you know knock-on uh, capabilities well you'd call it a, you'd call it a composite these yeah days, yeah you? you could say you use a composite material and you'd you'd sell it 
you'd sell it for twice as much. The Rolls Royce, though, do deliver duds, is the thing, don't they? For, so, for instance, I mean, uh, the Western Whirlwind is famously one of the dud types of the Br- British types of the Second World War, and it's the Peregrine, and then the Vultures on the Manchester as well. Am I right in thinking uh, aren't up, up to scratch? How are they? De- how are they developing duds even when they're so sort of supreme at this? Um, I think because a lot of people don't really understand how engine development works. Engines are really no, I don't. No, I they're, don't. They're, they're, um, <laughs> they're, they're engines are really funny things, and um, they do have a lot of personality. And this, this, they're very complicated in a way that an airframe isn't. They're not simpler. Um, and an airframe isn't a simple thing to develop at all, but the engine is very particular because you've got um, combustion happening, you've got all the mechanical loads, you've got vibration, you've got electronics, you've got lubrication, there's so many different things happening that um, they do develop a bit of a personality. And a lot of people don't know, when the Merlin was first developed, it was absolutely rubbish, absolutely hopeless, absolutely just a boat, a yep. boat anchor. You wouldn't... You, in the, you know the first Merlin, the first Merlins, they were, can it be a more damning description for a the, 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 for a engine? The first, the first Merlins are basically so hopeless that they all ended up getting put in fairy battles. Um, <laughs> um, but but why are they so bad? I mean, what is it that that a makes them bad in the first place, but also makes Rolls Royce think actually? Do you know what? there's still enough here to kind of develop to turn this into an absolute humdinger? Well, I think basically it's just concentration of effort. And I think you can take almost any reasonably sound basis. And if you just put enough people on it diligently over enough amount of time and resource them properly, you'll get a winner. And if you've got too many engine projects, you'll just make loads of duffers. And they've plenty of time for the Merlin, haven't they? It's peacetime. They've they've time, haven't they? Because 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 a lot of the, the, the once the war starts, you've got to you've you, you any any new engine is a disruption to current production and all that sort of stuff, isn't it? So you've got to be sure it's working to to spend time and plant on it. Yeah, I mean, there's just it's so many engines were just absolutely hopeless when they were first made, and it, it, they just needed a huge amount of effort on them. Um, to iron out the problems and then you're onto a winner and it's very unusual that you sort of pick some sort of magic thing that just works straight away and it's perfect you just need thousands of hours of work and effort and if you're trying to do too many things like you know peregrines and and vultures along at the same time um, those could have been developed to be perfectly reliable and decent engines but they just sacked them off because they thought we're not going to we're not going to manage to sort all these things out Mm. you've got to sack them off So the the answer is those other engines could have been made to be perfectly decent things, but I think they recognise we can't get all of these things working properly. So what to what is it? What what is the? I mean, I know, I know what the difference is in terms of a kind of sort of data sheet, but what is the the, the actual difference between a Merlin three, a Merlin forty five, a Merlin sixty one? You know, I mean, as as they sort of progress in in terms of horsepower, in performance, and all the rest of it, what is it that they're doing to them to and what is it about the innate design that enables them to kind of produce better versions of the original? Because uh, it's quite a simple layout. You don't have to spend a lot of time mucking around with, you know, weird and wacky things like sleeve valves. Um, and sleeve valves are fascinating, but um, even the Germans recognised that, and the Americans, if you want to use that, it's going to take you five years just to make the sleeve valve work. And that's before you've done anything with making it 
have a better supercharger or last longer that's just to get that bit so if you've got a really simple engine like a merlin all that effort can go on actually making the little bits of it better because you're not having to solve some sort of fundamental real sort of you know tricky little widget that someone said is going to win you the war and which never does so um but but what is it that you're doing to make so it better? So basically, you're you're raising. Is it on the is it on the pistons? Is it the fuel injection? You know, I, I mean, you can tell I'm not technical. But I mean, you know, what, what is the process well, of making an the, engine better? The Merlin crank speed stayed the same throughout the whole war, and the only other way you can make the engine make more power is to put the gas pressure up. So basically, you need more boost pressure. That's all you're doing, and basically, all Rolls Royce did is progressively with better superchargers and better fuels, stick the supercharger, boost up, 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 and then just fixed all the bits of the engine that broke when that happened. And that, that sounds horrifically <laughs> simple, um, and it's actually really not. And you need a lot of staff concentrating design hours on that, because if you put, if you imagine the force on the piston, all that has to be reacted through the bearing, all of it. All that force is going into the bearing. If it didn't, the crankshaft just fly at the bottom of the engine and straight into the ground, and then you don't take yep. off. So. Yeah all that force is going through the bearing. So the amount of technology you've got to put into bearings, and no one cares about those, do they? Oh, two round bits of metal, you know, moon-shaped things that go around the crank, who cares? But if you don't have those working, the engine doesn't work and you can't make more power. That's exactly what happened to the Germans. Yep. Their bearings got knackered, totally destroyed. Which is, which is why everyone's re- relentlessly bombing Schweinhurt, because... Because that's the ball bearing factory. Um, well, the the German problems with bearings uh, early on were not connected to the ball bearing problem. So basically, right. it's the the plane bearings, which are just like a shell, um, that right, go around yeah. the crank. So um, they basically just fell behind developing the me- metallurgy. So it's a, metallurgy really? is a, so metallurgy is key to all of this, isn't it? Which it means is. you need to be able to get your hands on them. It's all very well theorizing the metallurgy, but you need to be able to get your hands on the stuff. You need to be able to. Um, uh, uh, produce the alloys you need and all that sort of stuff, and that's 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 a thing that the that the British obviously have an advantage in because they've global trade at their disposal, haven't they? And mineral global mineral trade at their disposal in a way that the Germans don't, right? Yeah, I mean, if if you look at things like that, it's actually it's preposterous that the Germans even started the war, and yeah. in 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 that microfilm <laughs> IWM, you can see, and I think it I think it's nineteen thirty nine. There's, there's a German study of um, all the fundamental materials, aluminium, copper, and all this sort of thing, yeah. and where in the world the resources are in pie charts. And yeah. they, they knew perfectly well they didn't have any of any yeah. of these things. <laughs> well, they're, so, they're, they're, they're stuck in the middle of Europe with no resources of their own apart from a bit of coal and their total land up, and they haven't got a navy. What are you going to do? So it's the, from that point of view, uh, it's you know in some respects they've got no excuse because they knew they didn't have these things. I, I think really... All they were banking on, really, is that they could finish the whole thing off in about 18 months. I think that's their yeah. only shot yeah. Um, yeah. Of, yeah. of doing it, basically. Yeah. Um, but we, we did have all these all these resources. And um, there's small things like, you know, um, French Morocco, that's where Germany got almost all of its cobalt from. Yeah. So when French Morocco was taken, you actually have the engine designers going, oh, French Morocco's <laughs> fallen. I haven't got any cobalt. Uh, yep. How am I going to make the engine work now? And they say, "Oh well, you have to make those bits with. You have to make a special no cobalt alloy." And they say, "Oh great." Yeah. 
So um, that, that's one reason Germany did a lot of really interesting metallurgy is because they did a lot of work on how you make things work without any of these alloying elements. Right. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's just, but, 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 but there's not enough of them are talking to each other, are they? Um, no, and it, it doesn't... Um, you can make this stuff, but if you... Uh, I think they interviewed the at the end of the war, I think it's in the book as well, I think the BMW engineering chief said, I think they had to change their crankshaft alloy about six times and the valve alloy about ten times. And, um, yeah, you can do it, but that's, I don't know, 50 metallurgists and 100 engineers who've been occupied for two years and not making the engine more powerful because they're trying to do yeah, all this and then, stuff. And then the con- concomitant testing to make sure that it works and doesn't fall apart and all that sort of stuff. So... Each time you're kind of at square one with the engine itself, aren't you? Because the, you've changed a component radically. Yeah, yeah and, and not all of it's, you know, Britain changed stuff, but it was always to improve something or make more power of it. Um, even testing stuff in Germany got complicated because um, you'll see that in the book as well. You know, they, they said, um, Mel said, oh, the Daimler-Benz said that their engine test cells stopped this morning and it turns out that there's no one in them. So they'd been conscripted. <laughs> And Mills um, just say, well, what? You've conscripted the engine test engineers. Where have they gone? You know, Stalingrad. Oh, and then they say, well, how many? <laughs> then they actually have this conversation of how many of them do you think we can get back? And it sort of says, oh, I've requested... None, they're all dead. Oh, yeah, well, I've requested 180 names on a bit of paper who, you know, will probably never be seen again. So um, it's just ridiculous. You can also... You can also see the situation in Stalingrad. A bloke turns up and goes, anyone here an air- aircraft en- uh, engine tester? Yeah, yeah, I am. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, what? Exactly. They're, they're, yeah, they're, they're all Spartacus all of a sudden, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, um, so, so, um, so what's happening in the, in the Soviet Union? Is, it, is there a... Is there I was a, just about to ask the same thing. Because, because again, you know, we, I'll go back to where we were when we started. That the, you know, the, the impression people have of the Soviet Union's approach to technology is kind of mass production... Rough and ready, um, keep it simple, stupid, um, all, all those sort of watchwords. And is that what they're doing in their piston, um, aero piston engine development? Uh, to a small extent, because they um, sort of run out of time with the development, and a lot of their stuff it contains a lot of elements of copying um, stuff that um, they've licensed built in the sort of right. preceding decade. Um, and some of it's a bit clunky looking, but it's not stupid. Um, right. You know, and they're, they're, I know we're talking about aeroplanes, but their tank engines are really much better than German tank engines. Um, yeah. they're very, very reliable, and um, you, you know, using diesel, which is um, you know a, fa- <laughs> a fairly good thing to aim for if you're someone trying to shoot at you and you don't want to go on fire. We need to take a quick break now. We'll be back in a second. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. We're talk- talking to Callum Douglas about uh, the development of the piston engine. And uh, this is the supremest rabbit hole of all. So the Soviets, um, do, do, they, do, they, do their engines reach a kind of pinnacle of finesse that, 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 say, the British and Americans do? Or are they, like, sticking to types they know work? It's pretty basic stuff. Um, so they don't really try anything wacky. But they've got some, they've got some like, pretty impressive gizmos on them um so uh, you've got mikulin who was um basically awarded the sort of hero of the party 
you know, by Stalin. Yeah. You know, he's a sort of a, a sort of state hero, basically. And um, he sort of looks a bit like a Bond villain as well, which is quite funny. He's sort of bald. And, <laughs> um, but his engine, uh, so the Germans captured one of his engines and they said, oh, you know, it's a, it's a bit unlike, but it's not, you know, not bad considering the resources they've got to build these things with. They said, you know, there's this funny widget on the front of the supercharger, which we haven't seen before. And um, I was looking at the report, looking at that, and I thought, that, it, it, that, that's what we've got on the front of the F1 engine. It's, it's used on many, um, <laughs> it's used on several Formula One engines. And um, right. the, the only, there's only tiny differences in the design. And I had no idea about this. And I thought, oh, this is on, this is on a sort of clunky Russian engine. And it's actually it's a really, really, really clever widget called a swirl throttle. We won't go into all the details, but it's very, very clever. And it basically means you can make about 10% more horsepower at lower altitude. Very, very clever stuff. And um, wow. Wow. Yeah. Germans uh, actually had that uh, in testing in about 1939, but bizarrely enough, never did anything with it until the yeah. um, they put one on the UMO 213, though which was their best engine, but they only managed to make a few thousand of them right at the end of the war. So, um, the But Callum, just go back, sorry, very quickly, just go back to the tank engines. I mean, yeah. w- what is it about the Russian engine, tank engines that makes them better than the German ones? Is it just because they're less, less complex to, to make, more reliable? Um, well, the, well, or they, is it a combination? Well, they've been designed for the cold. So um, all their systems are designed that you can start when the cold, whereas you've got Germans, you know, lighting campfires under the engine just to, you know, in the morning yeah. to start the damn things up. Um, and um, I mean, I've got to say, I've got I've got an old 1942 truck, and it and it starts much better when it's freezing than it does when it's by <laughs> summer. But that's the problem they had with the weasel, didn't they? Because the, the the you know the little amphibious thing, because that was designed for Norway, for campaigning in Norway with, and they got it to Normandy in the summer, and it would it would catch fire because it would the the whole thing was geared to to being used in permafrost or whatever. And uh, yeah, they had a terrible problem with that. So that, I mean, that's, that's interesting. If you design around the cold, uh, uh, you end up with something quite different. Um, so, so the Soviets are, uh, uh, the, the Soviets are mass producing though in giant numbers, aren't they? Cause they produce a ton of airplanes, don't they? Oh yeah. Huge numbers. Um, I think the, I think the Sturmovics actually outranks the 109 in terms of numbers produced. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, in, in fact, I think it's probable that a lot of the 109 numbers are actually, like a lot of the uh, German numbers are actually fraudulent. A bogus. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, the, I don't know if you got to that bit in the book yet, Al, but basically when the American investigators went in in 1945, they started yeah. adding the numbers up, the production. Said, but uh, hang on a minute, there's 8,000 planes that don't exist. And yeah. went and spoke yeah. to, you know, Speer, who everyone, well, I say everyone, yeah. lots of people think was this sort of magician who did all this wonderful stuff. And he really wasn't. He's just a con artist, basically. Um, he did some clever things, but he wasn't anything like as useful as people think he is. So basically, um, just to look good with Hitler, um, any plane that had so much as, you know, a bit of paint put on it again, he just had renumbered as a new aircraft from when it came out of the repair shop. So if it goes in for a refit or a repair, those were designated new aircraft. So Hitler's looking at all these figures. They go, oh, made you know thousands of planes this month, and half of them were just redesignated repair jobs. So just cook Cause, the books. Because after all, that's what he wants. He's he's got he's got numbers, isn't he, in his head? He wants to see raw numbers, doesn't he? And so if you can go to him and go, well, oh, we did ten thousand last month, he's happy. 
isn't he? Because uh, it, 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 that, that after all, yes, when, when, when the Americans went to find out if the, strate- the strategic bombing survey after the war, they went to find out um, how well the bombing had worked, didn't they? And they spoke to Spears subordinates who said, oh, yeah, we, we managed to produce thousands of fighters despite you bombing us, which is fed into the story about the, strate- the idea that strategic bombing campaign isn't ne- wasn't necessarily effective. Um, you know, that impression that people have that it wasn't. But but as we, we've talked about before the podcast, the Germans are spending 40, nearly nearly half of their national economy of their war effort on building fighter planes to defend against the um, uh, strategic bomber offensive. So it's obviously having an effect, you know, because they could be building tanks It's all, in, in terms of opportunity. Cost. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very interesting conversation. Um, uh, there was a good forum chat. Actually, someone said something like, um, oh, why didn't we just build mosquitoes and not have any four-engine bombers? And a lo- a lo- yeah, yeah, lo- yeah. I've, yeah. I've, we've had this uh, one. It's a, it's a really good uh, question. A, lo- a load of people underneath said, oh, shut up. This is stupid. You know, that's this, you know, what you're talking about. And so I thought, well, it might be stupid, but I do actually have an air ministry letter where they actually say that. <laughs> so I, I put that on the forum and said, well, you could say it's stupid, but they were actually talking about it. And uh, Well, the advantages are, aren't you? You've only got two crew rather than seven. Yeah, absolutely. You're delivering less ordnance, but you can get in there faster and safer and, you know, arguably more accurately. So um, I think you can't do the same thing. I don't think you could have laid, you know, I don't think you could have levelled Germany because um, I don't think you can scale the numbers up because eventually I think you'll get into the problem that you can't actually manage that number of planes and airfields taking off on one mission, you know. Yeah. So there's, there would be a limit to it. But I think it's a really valid sort of what if to discuss because, you know, they're there. They were talking yeah. about that at the time. So I think... Um, I think it's something like uh, 2.3 times less bomb load, but you've got, you know, several times the survivability and, and less less crew losses and so on. And also, if you... Yeah. There's no doubt that the, the heavy bombing absorbed a lot of resources, but if you if you read the, the meeting minutes, what really hammers them is the fuel bombing, you know, when they knock out the refineries and uh, mosquitoes. Yeah, yeah the mosquitoes could have actually done all that. Um, on their own quite adequately and um, and they don't because they're not American and because there's just not enough of them so it's it's, it's, it's a good question but um, Bal- balsa wood not yeah. flesh that's what it comes down to <laughs> yeah 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 very good um, and so, so, yeah go on. go on go on Jim well I was just going to say what about America then yeah that's, that's my next question oh we're just so in tune today <laughs> uh, well, they're, they're very very interesting so in some ways they've done a much better job than the British with things like turbocharging, which um, is, is really not a futuristic thing at all. I mean, people in World War One doing stuff with turbochargers, you know, it's not, there's nothing um, space, space age about Magic it. Magic about it, yeah. But, yeah. Um, you know, the Americans actually had mass-produced fighters with turbochargers in World War Two, and pretty much nobody else managed to do that in an effective way at all. And you get very good high altitude performance with that it's so that they actually managed to do that you know and in a very short space of time and they you know all right through a german edgar schmood but they did actually pretty much give us the mustang as well although it was you know the british signed a bit of paper saying we want a good plane but i think the americans did all the hard work there really didn't they there's no such thing as the most decisive or the best plane, but I think you, you, I think the Mustang has a really, really important part, and it is an incredible harnessing of of airframe and it is. engine. I, isn't I really agree with you. I think it's an incredibly decisive plane, and um, 
we need we needed Spitfires. You know, they they got us through a lot of scrapes, and that was a great plane that could be in production through the whole war and still be effective at both ends of it. That's an amazing achievement. But um, really, that again, going back to what I said about the Mosquito, if you read through the German uh, Air Ministry meeting minutes, you know, when they're talking about the Mustang, you know, they're, they're talking. The Germans are talking in one meeting. They're talking about um, you know improving their planes, and someone says, "Oh, what about the Mustang?" And Milch basically says, oh, the Mustang, that's that's in another class. You know, as if to say, oh, look, we're not even going to, you know, we can't compete with that. You know, we'll make it a, a better 109 to give us a better chance against the Spitfires. But, you know, forget about trying to do something like a Mustang. He just says, you know, that's another, that's a whole, you know, that's untouchable, you know. Isn't that amazing? amazing? That is amazing. And then, you, you know, and then when you combine that with improved training as as the war goes on british and, and american and of course canadian you know but 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 sort of um, western allied fighter pilots their training just gets better and better because they've worked out their training schemes they they can train in in dry weather and and they're putting more time into it so you know your frontline fighter pilot when he joins his squadron in england for example whether it be the 8th air force or whether it be ref He's got 350 hours in his logbook compared to 150, 170 in 1940. And that's just such a massive difference. Whereas the Luftwaffe is, you know, they're lucky if they've got 100. And so you've got a mismatch in terms of quality of planes. You've got a massive mismatch in terms of quality of pilots. Uh, definitely. I think um, you, you get some really strange um, sort of combat reports. And you can see that there must be, you can see there's a core of sort of elite German pilots who are actually pretty good, you know, um, experts. And the rest of them are just... That's, I mean, I, I the, yeah. I mean, I should, I should, I should never use this word about a human being because it's, it's awful to do so. But they, they are chaff, basically, which is an awful thing to say about anybody. But that's what they are. Yeah. And they run it. They run it like that, though, don't they? That the, they do run the Luft. I mean, they st- in 1940 they're doing that, aren't they, Jim? You've lead pilots, and, and yeah, they become the basically, expert. Yeah, and they become the expert. And the job of the the job of a staffel is to get the lead pilot protect the lead pilot and get him in where he can do some killing. And so already when, you know, when things are supposed to be going well for the Luftwaffe, they're doing that. So that as a, you know, you multiply that problem across the years or extrapolate that way of doing it into four years later. And you, you, like you say, Callum, you've got people and they're, they're simply cannon fodder. They're, 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 they're there to, if if they're lucky, they're there to help the expert and get on target. But that's it. And, and for all, and for all, sorry, and for all the all the obviously good things about the Messerschmitt one hundred and nine, it's not an easy plane to fly if you're undertrained. You know, it comes to all sorts of problems, and you know, it's estimated that at least a third of casualties within Luftwaffe fighter pilots are are just accidents. Yeah, and, and you know, they have this perfectly good plane. Which could have been developed, had room for development, the Heinkel 112, which could have been absolutely fantastic, which has a wide undercarriage, has elliptical wings, has immense range of best part of 800 miles, which for a single engine fighter in 1930s is just totally unheard of. Um, so, I mean, we've done the kind of uh, the, the, the broad sweep here. What, which engines for you, though, you know, because, I mean, if we're going to ask anyone this question, which engines really stand out for you from each, from each of the combatants as the, as the, the like, major combatants? We haven't yeah, the major Japan combatants, yet, the, yeah, or Italy or any of them, but, but the the pinnacle of the of 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 um well the book's Western Front fight of en- engine development, Jim. So we can we can we can, we can yeah, allowed, yeah, 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 we're allowed to enough. narrow in. Which, which ones for you, Callum, are like the the 
the pinnacle of piston engine uh, development. If we, we we need to narrow this down a bit and just go with what what was actually used yeah. operationally because things things get really complicated. Yeah, yeah, sure, otherwise. yeah. Um, I think from America the the Pratt and Whitney the the R twenty eight hundred is just it's just it's such a solid thing that really just does the job and it does it really well and it's solid and reliable and doesn't go wrong basically. Uh, and this is what's on the B seventeen. Uh, no, that's in that's in the P forty seven, the Thunderbolt. Oh, of yeah. course, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. I think yeah, that's just yeah. that's a, it's, you know, Stanley Hooker with like he referred to the BMW engine for the FW one ninety. He he described it as cheating because it's a huge engine, you know. But the fact the fact is that <laughs> yeah, okay, it's cheating, but it works really well. So um, that's just it really. So it develops so much, de- de- delivers so much thrust. It just doesn't matter that. It's not very aerodynamic, and it's yeah, exactly. It's a big fat lump that's just really good. So (laughs) (laughs) there you go. Um, I think from Germany, uh, the UMO two one three is their is their best engine, and um, it's uh, really stupid of them that they didn't get that sort of higher priority for resource and and get that. So Guy Martin's obsessed with the DB six hundred one. So 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 have you got a beef with Um, that? Yeah, I mean, I, I would never, I, I struggle to, I feel a bit bad saying I disagree with Guy because I think Guy's probably, um, probably beat me in virtually every possible human endeavour that you could possibly write down on a piece of paper. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I don't agree with him about that. Um, I think it's, um, the UMO is a better engine, and um, he's he, oh, I feel so bad saying this now. He's also wrong. What you he, he said a few things which are a little bit wrong on the the podcast with you guys. So I'm gonna I'll take that up with take that up with him at the pub sometime. Um, so the the UMO is a much much better engine. Yeah. So it's um right. it's got this there's three things on a UMO that are on an F1 engine today. So if that. Tells you everything you right. need to know. As a measure of, uh, 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 can you yep. tell us what they are? Uh, there's an oil centrifuge. It's got the, the oil right. is fed into the nose of the crankshaft and not through the outside, which means the bearing lasts much better. And it's got a variable geometry supercharger. And um, right. all of those are on okay. modern F1 engine. So it's right. it's, a, it's a stunning piece of work. Um, in Britain, I right. can't really say anything other than it's got to be a, a two stage Merlin. Um, it's it's a basic yeah. layout, but it's been diligently developed with a lot of concentrated effort, and all these little details have just been got right. And you can't see them. It's exactly what James was saying. You know, what's the difference? Because they all look the same. You can't see any difference. Yeah. It's in tiny little changes to yeah. this, the shape and the metallurgy and the surface finish and stuff that you can't see. So it, it looks like I haven't done anything, but there's thousands of hours gone into all these little changes to make it not break when they put the boost up. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if you don't sit and chew through all the sort of dry reports, you, you could be forgiven just for looking at it and saying, well, what's the difference? Um, so it's, it's hidden. It's yeah. hidden. You know, all that stuff's hidden. It's not in sort of widgets that you can sort of point at externally. So that's the, the, the Merlin's a sort of <laughs> triumph of, of diligent detail design. Right. Yeah. And and tweak 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 until yep, you, until yep. you get it right. And um, like I said, the Merlin is hopeless when it was first designed, which is the same is true for many engines. So right. you shouldn't look, you know, <laughs> yeah, keep that in mind. Don't look too closely at the prototype. In other words, yeah. 
<laughs> okay, well, uh, Callum, uh, this has been absolutely fascinating, and um, and again, it feels like it feels like we've merely uh, glimpsed the tip of the iceberg here with this subject. Um, well, thanks very much for inviting me on the yeah, the podcast. Yeah. To be honest, looking at your sort of usual sort of guest list, I was actually quite surprised to be asked on. I thought this is a step up. Well, well, no, I I would you know any book that has. Uh, it, chapter the chapter about 1943, Germany on the defensive. Germany. The German challenge for 1943 was to overcome the horrendous problems which had so far dogged engine production. Okay, I like this. I like this book. It's called It's called The Secret Horsepower Race: Western Front Fighter Develop Engine Development by Callum Douglas, our guest today. Thank Thanks you so much, much for joining it's us. It's been great. We'll see you all soon. Cheerio.